Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Retain your place or regain it in the book of John, the 18th chapter. As you're doing that, on May the 6th of this year, there's something that will catch the attention of the entire world that will happen. That something is the coronation of Charles III as King of the United Kingdom. Great Britain and all associated territories and provinces And so, it's going to be a big day. In fact, it's going to cost a mind-boggling 120 million, yes, I said million, dollars. That's a lot of money, isn't it? For one day. It's going to be televised. When his installation from the civil side occurred some months ago at the death of his mother, 27 million people in Great Britain alone tuned in to watch that ceremony That was just in Great Britain, no telling how many other people watched it. And this coming May the 6th is going to be amazing to see how many people are there. 2,000 will be there, Westminster Abbey. For 900 years, ever since that time, 900 years ago, when some king or queen died, that ceremony coronating the succeeding person was held. He will wear a crown worn by his ancestor, King Edward. It's the King Edward crown with no telling how many jewels in it. He will also be anointed with oil because this ceremony is a ceremony that installs him as the head of the Church of England. Not only is he the head of the civil England, the civil part, he's also head of the Church of England. He will receive uh, an orb, which is a replica of the globe. At one time, when this ceremony was instituted hundreds of years ago, Great Britain was the world power. And that represents influence from the monarch, which will be Charles III, on the world, as he assumes his responsibility, anointed with oil, and also he will be given a lot of other things that are common to that responsibility. It's full of pomp and circumstance, isn't it? It's a place that only those who have a privileged place in the world ever get to experience, and very rarely at that. That's the world. Is That's the way the kingdoms of the world operate. We read in this passage of Scripture, that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So we're going to discover today what is Christ's kingdom all about and how we who know Christ or will come to know Christ will be subjects and should be acting as subjects in that kingdom. It's a kingdom that is built not on the world's view, but on God's view represented in the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of God's Word. That having been said, let me note another characteristic. I could go on and on. 
but I want to just limit one more characteristic of the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world are ruled by monarchs who are intent upon expanding the kingdom that they reign over. Case in point. Several years ago, in May of 2018, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal describing how something was occurring in Russia that was causing quite a stir. The acolytes, as they were described in the article of Vladimir Putin, were advocating that he become the king for life, in effect. Go from being the president or prime minister or whatever place he holds or has held there to becoming the king. And he's one who has acted like a king lately, hasn't he? In the sense that he's trying to expand his borders because in expanding them, you have more power, but more importantly, it's all about money, isn't it? What you can gain financially. We have a couple from our church who left last week, ago today, the Morgans, a doctor and a nurse team, going there to minister to people who are being ravaged by that war. I got a text from them yesterday, and it was a harrowing text that I received. It was not designed to sensationalize anything. It was a picture of what's going there. What I learned was that the scene in Ukraine, which is being course, fought in the war with Russia. It's like World War I is what I was told. Trench warfare. 500 to 1,000 Ukrainians are being wounded and or killed every day. Why? Because a king, in practice at least, Vladimir Putin is wanting more territory. Jesus' kingdom is not like that, though. He says it's not of this world. And so let's look at this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 28, which talks about the kingdom not being of this world. But what we need to interact with in this passage of Scripture is the trial of Jesus that was what we would call the Roman trial. Two weeks ago, when we were looking in the, this part of the Bible, we looked at what we would call the religious trial. And the religious trial, of course, was conducted by the Sanhedrin, the governing body of men within the context of Israel regarding matters pertaining to Israel. And Jesus stood trial there. But that was not the end of it. In order for the mission to be accomplished as far as Jesus' enemies were concerned, namely these leaders of the Jewish nation, 72 of them, there had to be consent and an order put, come down from the Roman authority who ruled in this area. We know the ultimate authority of Rome was none other than the emperor, Augustus. And, excuse me, Tiberius. And we know that had to happen, but in order for that to happen, there had to be another trial to determine that if Jesus really was guilty of something that would eventuate in his death, 
particularly his death on the cross. So let's look at this trial. And every Roman trial was predictable in terms of the four different aspects. The first aspect was there would be an accusation against the person who was on trial. We're going to see that in this passage of Scripture. Then there would be an examination of that individual based on the accusation by the judge. In this case, Pontius Pilate, the representative of Rome, would be the judge, and he would do an examination. Following the examination, there would be a defense. The individual would defend himself or would have an attorney to defend him. And finally, there would be a verdict rendered. All of these things are seen in this passage of Scripture. So let's dive right in here in verse 28 of John 18. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early. The Praetorium was the lodging place of Pilate, who was the procurator, that would be the equivalent of a governor of that region of the Roman Empire. When he would come from his normal residence, which was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, in the town known as Caesarea, he would come there and he would make his residence there. It so happens that this time he came and he was accompanied by his wife. Her name was Claudia. Normally she did not come with him, but she came with him this time. You may recall the other gospel writer, one of them says, that she had a dream about this man, Jesus. And as a result of the dream, she warned her husband, be careful with him. Be good to him, in effect. And that warning got through to Pilate. So Pilate was a man who was a man of authority, but actually, looking at his background, he was born in Spain, therefore a Spaniard. He grew up in the city of Seville. And he was also a part of the legions which fought against what we now know as Germany. It's Germanicus is what it was called there. And after the Romans did all they could to advance their territory, he retired. And then he thought, I need to make some money. He was interested in making money, and he thought the best place that I can make a lot of money is to go to Rome. He went there on a mission, not only to make money, but to find a wife. And it so happened that he ended up somehow, I don't know the details of it, but he ended up marrying the granddaughter of the emperor. That woman's name's Claudia, as I mentioned. Her mother was obviously the daughter of the emperor, Tiberius, and that lady, Julia was her name, she was not well thought of, even by her father. He said, I wish I had been wifeless and childless. You ever had a kid like that? We won't have any testimonies on that this morning. But nevertheless, she came from that line. Now, she seems to have been a little more calm and reserved than her mother. But nevertheless, you see how calculating... Pilate was. He was building his portfolio. At the same time, he was building credibility to rule and to reign. When he came to this region that Jerusalem was a part of, this area that he was responsible for on behalf of the emperor, 
the first thing he did was something that his five predecessors had never done. It was in 26 AD. And what he did, he came in by night into Jerusalem and he had his men carry banners that had emblems of the emperor and even descriptions in sculpt, sculpture of the emperor. And that was anathema to the Jewish people because it was offense. It was like bringing an idol into Jerusalem. As I mentioned, his five predecessors, none of them did that. They were more savvy than that. But the result was not good. He hoped to make a statement of strength. He returned to Caesarea and it was not long before hordes, literally hordes of Jewish people came to protest what he had allowed to happen with the introduction of all these things that were idolatrous based on the king or the emperor Tiberius and inclining the people to know that he's the emperor and he's the one who's in charge. And they came and he said, I want you all to go to the arena. Caesarea had a large arena for the games. They all did as he said. He came to them, he spoke to them. And he said, if you don't go back home and do what I want you to do, you're going to be in big trouble. And the people shocked him. To a per every person, I don't know how many were in that arena, probably several hundred, they said, we will not go back without your promise to withdraw all those emblems of Rome from our holy city. He said, okay, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to kill you. He was calling their bluff, but they did one better. They called his bluff. All of them knelt and then they bent down from the waist and they rolled back the clothing that covered their necks and inviting their being beheaded as they were told they would be if they didn't comply. Well, he had to eat his own ego that day for sure. But he continued to rule. And he made some other mistakes along the way. Time will not permit for me to examine those with you. But suffice it to say, this man was a politician. He was money hungry. He was wanting to build a reputation, probably in hopes that someday he would be elevated to a position of greater authority than the one he held in that region on behalf of the emperor. So here's Pilate. It was at the praetorium that these people, in verse 28, brought their concern to him. And it says, um, verse 28, the middle of this was, they did not, they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. What does that mean? It simply means that according to Jewish law, no Jew could practice the Passover if that person had contact with a non-Jewish person. Obviously, Pilate was a Gentile. So they had to figure something out. They could not go into the residence where a Gentile lived because it would disqualify them for this most auspicious occasion in the course of every year 
to observe the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Supper, but the Passover feast. You remember the institution of that feast. It occurred actually by this time over a thousand years earlier when God helped Moses lead the children of Israel out. The tenth miracle that had to be performed in order that that to happen was the observance of the Passover lamb. You remember that story. Every family had to have a male lamb without blemish, one year old, and then they would sacrifice, take the blood, and they put the blood over the lintel and the doorposts of that entryway into every place there. And when the death angel came over, the death angel would see the blood of that lamb and the firstborn would not die. If there was no blood over anybody who lived in Egypt, over their lintel and their doorpost, then the firstborn would die. Firstborn human and firstborn of animals. That was the final stroke that God used to relieve the people and set them free. It was the highest day, the highest feast, and they didn't want to miss it. See the irony here? Here Jesus, whom we know is called in the book of John, chapter 1, when John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here was the Lamb of God right in their presence, and they were wanting to do away with Him the very one that they would have to commit their lives to in order that they would be atoned as far as their sin was concerned. Isn't it interesting how people elevate their religious beliefs over the teachings of what Christ says and what the Bible speaks of regarding Him. Verse 29 says, Pilate therefore went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Here's the accusation. They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. What kind of evil had Jesus done? In Luke 23 verse 2, there's an allusion to the evil that he had done from the perspective of the Jewish leadership. They said three things that he had done that were evil. He began by talking about how he had misled the nation of Israel. It goes back, do you recall, when Jesus came to the temple after having been in Cana of Galilee where he performed his first miracle of turning water into wine. Do you remember that? And when he came there, he found the temple full of money changers and full of animals. And therefore, he fashioned a whip and he ran all those money changers out of the temple along with their animals because they were defiling the temple. And then he came and he was interrogated by some of the leaders, religious leaders, and basically they said to him, where do you get off doing this, Jesus? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. It was in the temple area. And they really got furious then. He, they said, it's been in construction for 46 years, and you say you can destroy it in three days, and 
you will come and you'll restore it? Well, obviously, Jesus was alluding to what became the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. So they alluded to that. Well, they didn't have a leg to stand on because they could not find two witnesses. Remember, out of the mouth of two witnesses, a matter is confirmed. The Jews were careful to follow that rule. They could not find two people who could give the kind of information that would indicate Jesus actually said that. He said it, but He didn't say it the way they interpreted it. So that's what they meant by misleading Israel, the nation of the Jews. The other thing they accused Him of was not recognizing Caesar as the one who should be paid taxes. Well, that's crazy because in Matthew 22, Matthew, beginning with verse 17, talks about Jesus was questioned, should we give tax to Caesar? And here again, it was a trap set to find him in the breaking of the law of God by some of these religious leaders. He said to Peter, find me a coin. Peter caught a fish, had a coin. He raised the coin up and he asked all present, including his detractors, he said to this, whose image is on this coin? Well, it was the Caesars. And that's what they said. And he said, brilliantly, you would expect it from Jesus. He said this, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. In other words, he's saying we are to be, we who are members of the kingdom of God are to be good citizens in that sense. We're not of the world. We are in the world. There's a big difference. Being of the world is you're like the world. You have the same tastes and desires that are characteristic of the world. But we need to be in the world. Why? We as believers are not to isolate ourselves from unbelieving people. We're not to see them as the enemy. We're to see them as people for whom Christ died and was raised from the dead. We're to see them as people who would be candidates we would hope to know Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice that you could lead people to Jesus who are totally different from you? Maybe they're like you were once before, but you've been a new, made a new creation in Christ. Absolutely. Jesus wants us to be interfacing with people who don't know Him because He's given us the great opportunity to be witnesses for Christ. I received some information this weekend that just blessed my heart. And it was about a man, I won't call his name, but I began to witness to him rather regularly. I was going probably three times a week to get food for my wife and I would go through the drive-thru and I, I saw his name, name tag. He was a very pleasant young man. And I, I learned his name. And every time I went through, I would see him almost. And I'd speak to him. I said, we got to get together. He said, I'd like that. I came through one day. And when I came through, he said, this is my last day. I said, oh Lord, I've done it again. I've waited too long to share the gospel with someone you put on my heart. And I, my heart sunk and I, and I, because when I went back the second day, I went back again the next day, he was not there. I'd asked him to leave his phone number. Nobody had his phone number. 
So I thought, oh my, I'm not going to get to talk to him. But through a, a series of circumstances, I got to see him. And I asked him, would you meet me for lunch? He said, yes. I was able to share the gospel with him. And I said, does this make sense to you? Yes. He was not ready to give his heart to Christ. And I wasn't going to push him. You've got to let the Spirit work on a person like that. And I said, call me back. I guess easily two years have passed. And I have tried to call him as recently as two weeks ago. I texted him and didn't hear from him. Prayed for him a lot over that time. And I'd almost given up hope. And then last night, this is phenomenal. Last night, a young lady in our church came up to me and she called this young man's name. He's a Muslim, by the way. She called his name. And she said, do you know? And she says, and I said, I sure do. I know him. And she said, he has given his life to Christ. Here's someone. Yeah, amen. Amen. And it's a picture. Actually, it's a picture of what Paul says about himself and Apollo. You remember what he said about him? He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So, Take that to heart and realize you and I have the opportunity to share the gospel. We are to sow the seed of the Word of God. Do it indiscriminately. Just sow seed. If you know about the way seed was sown there, it's still sown there in some parts of the world, how a sower has a sack over one shoulder and the bag's on one side. If he's right-handed, he digs down in there and what's he doing? Just throwing it indiscriminately. Some falls on good soil, some falls on bad soil. Look, what we need to do is just share the gospel and do it in a loving way and be bold in sharing the gospel, calling people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a world of people right here in this city like that young man. And pray, you don't need to know his name, the Lord knows his name, but just pray that God will work in his heart, help him to grow. I have received two calls from him. I've missed them. So that's good news. I'm going to hopefully call him today and follow up on that. I'm really excited about getting with him. So much so that I've forgotten where I am in this text of Scripture. <laughs> but I think I know where we are. So the other thing that Jesus was accused of, and this was an accurate accusation by this group of people, he was accused of saying, I'm king. And we see in this passage more than one place. We'll get to that in just a moment. I'll talk more fully about that. Verse 31, Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. And that was the truth. You know that capital punishment, according to the Mosaic law, was by stoning. There were certain sins that called for stoning. But the Roman government had withdrawn the right for the Jews to practice stoning. There was no capital punishment that was left in the hands of the Sanhedrin. It was all pushed forward and put into the hands of the Roman governor there. In the case of this case, it was Pilate. And he goes on, verse 32, they continue 
speaking that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Now, go back to chapter 12 of John. I want you to see this with your own eyes instead of hearing it. It's only from me. In verse, let's start with verse 30, 29 rather, and then read down. The multitude thereafter who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said to them, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. That was a prophecy which is fulfilled in this passion time of Christ's life. It's interesting. I found this interesting when I was doing my study. That if Christ had been stoned, he would be pummeled into the ground, into the dirt. But if he were crucified, he would be elevated. Jesus is saying, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Was that an accident? Absolutely not. Read Psalm 22. Read Isaiah 53. There are many places in our Old Testament, as we call it, where the prediction regarding the Messiah is He would be crucified before there was any such thing. In Psalm 22, David writes about the Messiah and how His hands were pierced. This is a remarkable Thing we call the Bible and how God speaks to us even today, even though it's hundreds and thousands of years old, God speaks to us. And the prophecies about Jesus are fulfilled. Jesus was lifted up. It's important too, as we've seen recently, that Jesus die such a death. The Bible says, Cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. Crucifixion was being hanged on a tree. It was destined that God would kill Christ on a tree. You say, God killed Him? Absolutely. The Bible says this in more than one place, but in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the Bible says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What a gospel. What a loving Father for us. And what a loving Savior we have. That they would together put together what we call the plan of salvation. And Christ was the centerpiece in the fact that He became a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. We'll look about that in a moment too. Let's look at verse 33. So we've got the accusation. He's accused of being the king. That was his own testimony and that was a correct kind of accusation. Now, remember the second aspect of a Roman trial? And we can say this for Pilate. He did trials by the book. 
because the next section, verses 33 and following, talk about his examination of Jesus. 33 says, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And the word you comes at the very first of the sentence in the original language. And it was a function of that language. The thing which you wanted to emphasize most came at the very first. The word order doesn't meet what we think is proper word order, but this is the way that would say. You, the king of the Jews, are... That's the way it reads in the original language. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered. He didn't answer him. He, be, he becomes the one who is doing the examination of Pilate here. Look. Jesus answered, are you saying, and here again, you comes at the front of the, say, of the sentence in the original language, which is for emphasis. Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Well, others told on him, correct? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? He's getting a little heated here, perhaps. Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Well, he examined him. Now look at Jesus' defense in verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom, and here again, there's sort of an unusual way of saying my. Usually it's just one two-letter word, just like in English, me. Two letters in the original language of the New Testament. And this is what is used by Jesus, he uses two words. And those two words are these words. The me, is what he's saying. The me, or the my kingdom, is not of this world. He's emphasizing, this is my kingdom. He's not trying to beat around the bush and deter his resurrection. If he goes on to say in verse 36, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. We know that Peter tried his hand at that in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was taken by force. I mean, he didn't resist because he knew that this was his destiny. He'd settled that issue in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed agonizingly, Lord, if it's possible, Father, remove the cup. Three times he prayed, and the Lord said, no, no, no. That's the end of the conversation. So, what we see is saying here. Peter tried to defend Jesus, cut off a piece of the high priest's servant, slave, Malchus' ear. Jesus restored it. And he said, don't get off into that kind of behavior, Peter. I thank you. He didn't say, I thank you, but he probably was going to say, I don't need anybody to protect me. Remember what just happened before someone took a switch, wanted to get me and you tried to kill him. And that something was, when Jesus was asked, you'll remember this, who we're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? And then what did Jesus say? I am He. And the word He is not in the New Testament text. He just said, I am. What does that remind you of? That's the name God gives to Himself. I am. And what happened? Boom! 
all of them fell down. And interestingly, the text of Scripture says, not I, I would have said they probably fell on their faces. But they didn't. They all fell backwards. That would have been a sight to see, wouldn't it? And by implication, they would have stayed there if Jesus hadn't let them up. So, if Jesus could do that to those who were coming to arrest Him, He didn't need anyone to defend Him, did He? Absolutely not. And Peter kind of got in the way there. But this Scripture is so clear to us that Jesus, when He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Three times He says, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. The word realm in the original language is a synonym for the word world. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Gotcha, really is what he's saying. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. Jesus didn't back off, did He? For this I have been born. What does Jesus say? Why was Jesus born? To go to the cross. To die for your sin. To die for my sin. Jesus loves you and me that much. Do you know someone who has willingly put himself or herself in a position to die to save your life? There probably is more than one person present who could say, yes, I do. All of our mothers put themselves in a difficult place to bear us, really. A place of inconvenience. And thank God they did not take our lives when they could have. And he says this passage of Scripture. Go on, Jesus answered, You say correctly, I am the King. For this I have been born. And for this I have come. When he's talking about being born, what's he talking about? He's talking about his being human. He's declaring his full humanity. For this I have come into the world. He came to die for sinners. The Bible says, this is the testimony. God sent His Son into the world to save us sinners is what that is all about. To bear witness to the truth. He came to bear witness of the truth. What is truth is what we see Pilate say later. He says, what is truth in verse 38? Well, Jesus has already told them what truth is, namely the apostles, and He tells us too. He says, I am the truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He also says to the Father, your word is truth. Jesus is truth. That which we call the Scripture, which bear witness to Christ, that is truth. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And just a few verses after that, Jesus says, the Scripture says in John, that when you have Jesus set, your, set you free, you're free indeed. Are you a slave to some habit in your life? Are you a slave to some drive in your life that only leads to destruction in your life? Look, Jesus Christ, if we will abide in His Word, what does that mean? We read His Word. 
We listen to Him. We ask Him, speak to me, Lord. And do you know that's one request Jesus will answer eventually to you if you expose yourself to God's Word? God's Word is His voice. Jesus, at the time of His baptism, God speaks, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then fast forward a year and a half or so, He's on a Mount of Transfiguration. The voice of God speaks to Peter, James, and John, and He says to them in the presence of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, He says to them, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to His voice. Can we hear the voice of Jesus? We hear it through the Word of God. Holy Spirit is described by Jesus in this Gospel as the Spirit of truth. He produces the truth. We know that He's the one who gave the message to the apostles and they wrote the message down under inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. And then He convinces us of the truth. He makes it clear that what He says in the Word is for us individually. And let's go back to the passage just a moment. Look at the last part of verse 37. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, and what that means is, it, here again, it's one of those unusual constructions grammatically in the New Testament language. Every single one of you Every single one of you who is of the truth hears my voice. If you don't hear from God, it's because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or if you know Him as your Lord and Savior, you're off in some far country and you need to come back and realize that trek you have taken is a dead end. In fact, it's worse than that. It's a hole that you're going to fall into and you may feel like you never can get out. But the good news is Jesus Christ came to help you. And He came not to help you simply for your sake. He came to help you so that you can be a help to other people who need the Gospel of Christ. They need to know the truth and the truth will set them free.